The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Exodus 20, verse number 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Should be able to close the Bible right there. Just walk away from this. Go home. Love our wives. Love our children. And love the Lord our God. This does not need any explanation. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We should be able to walk away from it. But as you know, it requires more explanation. It shouldn't, but it requires more explanation. Arthur Pink wrote, The commandment is a simple, unqualified, irrevocable negative. Thou shalt not. No argument is used, no reason is given, because none is required. This sin is so destructive and damning that it is in itself sufficient cause for stern forbidding. I think that Pink is trying to tell us about the highly destructive nature of this sin, that it is self-evident, that it tears at the core of our closest relationships, that it attacks the building block of our society, which is marriage, the first relationship that God gave between humans. It's the seventh command in God's Word. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you would do very well to consider the importance of the number seven in the Bible. And I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of this here, but that's a very easy number for you to remember because in the Bible, the number seven is a number of fulfillment. Remember the number seven and don't forget it because it is the seventh commandment that actually holds a key, a very important key to the covenant between God and man. Now look at the subject of the command. It's adultery. And what is the key thought whenever you see the word adultery? What's going to be the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, it would have to be marriage. The first thought is marriage because adultery is always in the context of marriage. And adultery is a sin against the fidelity of marriage. And so this is a command that safeguards the sanctity and the integrity of the marriage vow. But you ought not to think of it only in relationship to your personal marriage itself, but also to the institution of marriage. That was God's first gift to man. Marriage between a man and a woman. Now at the core of the Ten Commandments is the moral character of God. And over and over again we've emphasized as we study the commandments that these commandments are given to teach us to be like God. God is omnipotent and we can't be. God is omniscient, and we're not. God is omnipresent, and we're not. God has many attributes that we just simply can't possess. We can't be like God in those areas. Those attributes of God are what we call incommunicable attributes. You can't do them. I can't do them. There is no creature that's able to possess these certain attributes of God. In fact, it would be impossible for even more than one creature to possess all of them, and that's why there can only be one God. These attributes are exclusive to God who is above all, but there are other attributes 
that can be shared. And these are moral characteristics of God that we call communicable attributes. That is, that we can take part in them by obedience, by faith in Jesus Christ. We can, we can have these attributes of God present in each of our lives. And most particularly here is the attribute of faithfulness. That it is possible for us to be like God in this area, that we can be faithful. And if God wasn't faithful, if He wasn't always consistent, then there would be no consistency to the physical universe. All of the universe is held together by God. It's His almighty supreme power that, that holds it all together. And to alter even one of its plans, even one natural law, according to the things that God has given, would be to destroy life forever. It's essential that God is faithful, that God is perfectly consistent for life to be sustained. Now, on the local level, as it pertains to you, is the importance of God's faithfulness to His people. And did you know that the Bible that you hold in your hands today is arranged according to God's faithfulness? There is an Old Testament, and there is a New Testament. And those words, testament, simply mean covenant. A covenant is like a promise, that God has a promise and God has a covenant with His people that He will always remain faithful to them. God is always faithful to the terms that have been placed in the covenant. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He said, your father and your mother, they might turn your ba their backs on you, but I never will. He said that a mother might forget her child, but He said, I have graven you on the palms of my hand. God can be trusted to fulfill all the promises that He's made, and also He's faithful to all the warnings of punishment that He gives. And so I need you to keep this in mind today, that the commandments are a covenant. And these ten commandments are a part of the larger covenant where God has promised to bless His people, and when people break the covenant, then comes destruction and death. Now on God's part, He's always faithful to this covenant. Jeremiah wrote, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. His immutability, let me get that out, His immutability guarantees His faithfulness. The Ten Commandments teach us to be like God. And if we're to be like God, then what must we be? We must be faithful. God is faithful. To be like Him, we must be faithful. Now, there should help you to begin to see the seriousness of this commandment that fidelity must be maintained in order for us to be like God. Now, interestingly, there are many examples in the Bible where God accused His people of being unfaithful. And do you know the term that God always uses for His people when they are unfaithful? It's the term adultery. When you are unfaithful to God, the term that he uses for that is adultery. And particularly, God used that when speaking of Israel, who is known in the Scriptures as the wife of God. There's a spiritual marriage that existed between God and Israel. And when Israel forsook God and they broke that, that first commandment by worshiping idols, God said they committed adultery that they had broken the vow that they made to serve Him and Him alone. Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 24. At the end of Joshua, Israel had conquered Canaan and they were at peace. 
And it was time for them to settle in as a nation in the land and to obey the commandments that were given to them at Sinai. And do you remember that God told them that He would give them a land that they didn't work for? And He said, I'll give you cities that you didn't build. And I'll give you olive trees and vineyards that you didn't plant. And here they are. They're in the land. They're in Canaan now. They possess it. They're in the land that God promised that He would give. And so now it was time for them to serve the Lord their God and to put away all the vestiges of idols that were left over from when they were in Egypt. Joshua told them to do this. Now, do what they promised to do, he said, when God delivered you from Egypt. Look at the 14th verse, Joshua 24. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage in which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Do you see the vow that they made? Yes, we will serve the Lord. He him only will we serve. God forbid that we should forsake the Lord. And there we have their promise of fidelity. And why is it they said they would do this? Why would they serve God? Well, it's because God had been faithful to them. God was faithful to them. He pledged to be their God and that they would be His people. And so they were espoused to Him as a wife is to a faithful husband. But then what did Israel do? She openly and defiantly and in the sight of heaven and men and of the enemies of God, she broke that vow and did evil against God. She went whoring after idols and prostituted herself with heathen nations. Now, if you'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, this is approximately 1,000 years after the promise in Joshua. Ten centuries had gone by, ten centuries of ups and downs, of good times and bad times, much like many of you find in your marriages. And in Jeremiah, God had finally reached the limit of his patience. By this time, when Jeremiah writes, the northern ten tribes of Israel had been taken captive by the Assyrians and they were scattered all around, and the Samaritans that you read about in the New Testament were the children of that dispersion. And now, all that's left of this united kingdom of Israel that David ruled over and Solomon ruled over, now all that's left of them is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. There are some Levites that are in there, and the tribe, part of the tribe, a smattering of the tribe of Simeon was in there. Jeremiah began his prophecy at that time, and he started prophesying in a period of good times. He prophesied at the very beginning when Josiah was the king, and Josiah was the godliest of all of Israel's kings. 
But before he came to power, before Josiah came to power, his grandfather Manasseh was extremely wicked. Perhaps he was the most wicked of all of Israel's kings. None was more wicked than him. And God promised because of the sins of Manasseh that he would punish the nation and that he would not save them even though Josiah had brought righteous reforms. After Josiah died, every thing that he put into place, all the reforms that he made were quickly gone, and Israel turned back to where they were before. And so then God sent Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to punish them, and he overran them and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Why did God allow that? Well, it was primarily for the sins of Manasseh. Now to the point, if you look at Jeremiah 3 verse 6, it says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery... I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. It came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. So here Jeremiah gives a warning for Judah. The northern tribes were unfaithful. They had committed whoredoms. Note what God says in verse number 8. Backsliding Israel committed adultery. And then in verse number 9, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and stocks. Now, I want you to get that because the very worst that Israel could do to God was to commit adultery against him, to begin to follow and worship false gods, to break the first table of the law. And you remember what that says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. He called the violation of those commands adultery. And so the crime against God's faithfulness is adultery. Israel was unfaithful, and to God that was simply unthinkable because this was God's wife putting herself to, the, to whoredom, to heathen gods. And what was it that he wanted from Israel? He wanted one thing. He wanted commitment from them. He wanted faithfulness from them. He wanted fidelity in their covenant relationship, steadfast loyalty to him. Now, I, I labored with this at the beginning of this week when I started going back over this sermon of how am I going to impress the importance of what this says upon you to the degree that it needs to be made. And I'm not sure that I could absolutely do, actually do it. This is not a small thing. Adultery is the atomic bomb of destruction in the commandments because it's emblematic. It is emblematic of breaking fidelity with God. And when God's people are unfaithful, they are unlike God. You've heard the saying, like father, like son? Well, God's not like that. And so if his children are, that's an attack upon God's character. So you may say, well, how does that affect me? What's this all got to do with me? All this talk about Israel and about adultery. 
What does that mean to me? Well, it teaches you this critical fact that faithfulness to your marriage partner is emblematic of your faithfulness to God. The second table of the law is about our relationship with our fellow man. Now think about this. None is as close as that one. None is as close as this. If you are not faithful to the most intimate relationship that is known to man, the relationship of two bodies becoming one flesh, if you sin against your own flesh, then how are you going to be faithful in any other lesser relationship? You can't trust an adulterer. Adulterers are liars. He or she has given up on the most sacred of all human relationships. And that's an indication of deeply flawed character. Now, men and women will start dating someone who's cheated on their wife or their husband. That's about the dumbest thing that a person can do. You're going to end up being a victim of the very same thing because that person has flawed character. Anybody who breaks this relationship is flawed in the relationship that they have with God. It's only by the grace of God that anybody survives the disgrace of adultery. God will judge you. That's what it says in Hebrews. Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And so you need to remember this, that Exodus 20.14 is not just a statement about how you feel about husband or wife, it's a statement about what you believe about God. It transcends what you do to other people. It says volumes for how you respect the covenant commitment that you've made to God. And so I wish that I could, but I can't make this sound as bad as it is. You should see it in the Word of God. God hates it. It's one of the worst of all crimes. And you'll see in the exposition of this command how many different ways this sin is committed and how much God truly hates it. So this is where we begin our study of the command. All of this groundwork is necessary to help you to understand what a terrible sin this is. Much worse, it's a much worse sin than you can understand than by just six words in Exodus 20, verse number 14. The comprehensiveness of this command is to see how it refers to our relationship with God and then moves into our relationships with each other. So the issue here is faithfulness. It is fidelity. It's the covenant commitment of God to us and us to Him. And that, friends, is pictured by the marriage vows. Let me give you just a few points of discussion for today. Today's message is an, an overview of the parameters. The first thing that we learn here is about the importance of love. The importance of love. Most people read the Old Testament with very little understanding of its purpose. Maybe they don't actually read it, but what they've done is they've listened to what other people have to say about it. And their conclusion is that the Old Testament is about law. The Old Testament is about sternness. It's about punishment for disobedience. It's strict and unforgiving because the God of the Old Testament is that way. He's strict and unforgiving. And the truth told, he just doesn't like us very much. And then people read the New Testament and they conclude that, well, this is much different. This is nice. Jesus is Nice, and he loves everybody, and he came to rescue us from the harshness of Old Testament law. 
Well, I've done enough teaching on that subject that you don't need me to teach you any more, to say any more. But I want to say more about it, so I will. So let me explain this to you again. Let me help you to understand that the Old Testament is not about God building relationship with people based upon law. And we see this because God delivered Israel from bondage before He ever gave them the law. He set His love on Israel while they were still in their wickedness, while they were in their sin. Listen as he explains in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God swore an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, an oath that he was faithful to keep. He called Abram out of Ur when he was an idolater. It wasn't when he was a follower of the one true God. It wasn't when he was obedient to God. No, God called him out while he was still in his sin. And God gave the commandments to Israel for this one thing. That is, do you love me enough to obey me? Love is first. Understand that, that commandments do not connect us to God. Keeping of commandments does not connect us to God. The way that we are connected to Him is through love. It is love that connects us to God. Commandments are not the initial connection. We get plugged into God by love, and then the commandments flow through that connection when it's made. When Moses went through the law for the second time, before Israel went into Canaan, he emphasized this. He said, love God. Love God with everything that you have. Put your soul, your mind, your heart, all of your might into loving God. And why should you do that? Because God loves you. He loved you first. We saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord set His love on you because He would keep covenant with Abraham. He swore to your fathers. He made a commitment that He would love you because He made that commitment to your fathers. And what happened before they left Israel? God gave them a sign. He, he gave them a sign of His love. He gave them Passover. That was a picture of the redemption that they would have through God's only Son that God would give for the life of the world. The Passover lamb pictured that God so loved the world that He would give His Son to be a sacrifice for sin that His blood would redeem us to God. And that Passover came before God gave the law. And so God's great love preceded the law, and then the law was the outgrowth of that love. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and the statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. So the basis of the Old Testament law was love. Obeying the commandments, he said, is for your good. God wants to bless us. And in order to bless us, he must remain true to his holiness. Why? Because God is faithful. He doesn't change. You couldn't trust him if he changed. The basis of the law is love. Love for God and love for our fellow man. Well, is that different from what Jesus taught in the New Testament? No, it's not different at all. Jesus drew from the well of the Old Testament to teach the very same things. He, he taught that love is exemplified through commandments. 
So he quoted Deuteronomy in Matthew 27. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. That's the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There aren't any disagreements between the Old and the New Testament, especially on this. The connection which we have to God is love. Well, secondly then, what is it that connects you and me? What connects us to one another? We're very different people. None of us are exactly alike here. What makes a connection between me and you, or between husband and wife? That is also love. It is love that connects us to one another. Now, the second half of the Ten Commandments is about love for each other. Honor your father and your mother. Obey them, because respect shows love. Don't kill because you're supposed to love the life of your neighbor. Don't commit adultery because that destroys the sanctity of his family. You don't do it because you love him. You don't steal from him because you're not going to take away his livelihood because you love him. And on and on it goes. Each of these commandments is based on love. And the seventh commandment is actually the epitome of that. It's the paradigm. It's the model of love. That you can't love your fellow man if you are not a faithful person to your covenant commitment. There's no harshness, there's no hatred, and there's no adultery when we learn how to love. Love is always to put the other person above you. And the way that we know this is because that's the way that God loves. He's the model for it. God loved us so that He gave His own Son. He put you above the life of His Son. And Jesus came and gave His life by putting you above His own life. And if we stick to that principle all the time to put people above us, to be faithful as God is faithful, adultery is not possible. It's either faithfulness or unfaithfulness, isn't it? Isn't it? It has to be that way. You remain faithful to God, you can't commit adultery. So how does adultery happen? Just like it did in Israel. You break faithfulness of obedience, you break the command, and then it destroys. Well, next, because the command says adultery... We've got to take a closer look at marriage. What is that? How does marriage picture God? So secondly is the institution of marriage. And let me just briefly touch on this part. Where did we get marriage? Whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether you read what Moses said or you read what Jesus said, marriage is always the same. And that's because whenever Jesus preached on it, he quoted from the Old Testament, he quoted from Moses. Matthew 19, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Marriage is ordained by God. It's not a human invention. No matter who disagrees with this, only God can define it. He said it's between a man and a woman. Marriage is called holy matrimony because the source of it is God. The rules for marriage are not found in a book of counseling about marriage. The rules for marriage are not determined by the Supreme Court. The rules for marriage are determined by the one who gave it, and that is God. It comes from God's book. It's his rule book about marriage. Well, why did God give marriage? Why did he do it? Well, the one word I think that would best describe why God gave marriage would be the word union, because of union. Marriage is a union 
between two people, a union that is so tight and sacred that it's indissoluble. It's a union that's based upon a promise that can't be broken without breaking something that is sanctified holy. Jesus said, two become one flesh. Marriage is two people becoming one. Now, as, if you've ever been to a marriage ceremony that I've preached, it sounds very similar to this. So, you need to be careful. If you're holding your girlfriend's hand today, be careful. You might be married before we get done here. So, let's, let's watch out for that. Marriage is a union between two people in three essential categories. First, it's a union of the body. And I say first, not because the others are subordinate to this, but these are so closely linked together, we could put any of them first. But here's where I start. Uh, We've got to start somewhere, so we begin with the body. Marriage is a sexual union between two bodies. We often say that a marriage isn't consummated until there's this sexual union. And there are some people who believe that before that happens, if you've got second thoughts, it's a time to bail out. You do it then, before the marriage is consummated. But that's not really the right thought, because marriage is more than just the legalization of sex. In fact, it's not the legalization of sex. Sex is a part of it. There's no allowance for it without marriage. That part will come up in another message. But sex is a part of marriage. And when you talk about this, this is usually the point where people sit up in their seats and they strain to hear more. You're going to talk about sex, preacher? And people sit up, let's hear a little bit more about this. But there are some that slink down in their seats, tell me no more, I don't want to hear any more. We don't see that reaction too much, but it does happen sometimes. And so as far as I'm concerned, there's only a very, very small window here for us to talk about this. You're not going to hear me discuss this very much from the pulpit. There are some, though, that do sit up in the seat. Their interest is piqued by the mention of sex. And a healthy sex life is good for marriage. And if you want more on that, you can read Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7. But if a marriage consisted only of the legalization of sex, it would fail. It will fail. It will fail. If you, if you get married because of that, then your marriage is going to be temporary. Sex alone means that you haven't looked on the inside to see what that person is. Marriage for sex alone would be for personal gratification. If your passion is not focused on the one that you love and their inner being, then the sexual attraction that you have to them will fade. And when it does, that's when most people think, well, it's time to move on now. Because they got married for lust, not for love. They, they got their terms confused, and that's what many people do. They just fell in lust, and as soon as they begin to lust for someone else, then out goes the marriage. Marriage is a union of the body, but it has to be much more than that. It is a union of the body, but secondly, it's also a union of the soul. The soul would be the intellectual and the emotional part of the union. There has to be common interest between two people. Usually, that's the first thing that attracts people to one another. If the sexual attraction is the thing that got you together in the first place, then we don't call that anything other than animal instinct. Animals get together for the same purpose. And God had something to say about that too. And I'll talk about that next time. The first attraction should be the attraction of mutual interest and a desire for companionship. 
You want to share time with another person because you have common interest. And you may say, well, that's not true. I love football. My wife hates it. And I'm not saying you have to be identical, but there has to be some sort of a common interest, and that's where this thing begins. You're not identical twins, but somewhere in there, the minds are engaged on the same level. Often you hear people say, well, I'm looking for my soulmate. My, my soulmate. Is it true that there's only one person in the world who is your soulmate, and you have got to hold out serendipitously until your soulmate shows up? No. The soulmate argument is more for divorce than it is for marriage. How many times have you heard this? Nope, that one wasn't my soulmate. So I've got to keep looking until I find my soulmate. Who is your soulmate? Soulmate is the one that you marry. It's always the one that you marry. Because God said the two can never be separated. God can make your marriage everything that it should be if you obey the Bible. And the critical factor of understanding here is what is the Bible's definition of love? What, what does it even mean to love another person? And did you know that in the Bible, when it refers to talking about marriage love, marital love, that it never talks about romantic love? Romantic love is not the definition of marital love in the Bible. It's never put in terms of romantic love. Intimacy, care, devotion, concern, are all developed by a decision, not by an emotional process, not by emotional feelings. You know why? Because your emotions ebb and flow. Your emotions are up and down. Your emotions are like a roller coaster. Marital love in the Bible is a decision that you make. Emotions can be in there, but that's not the basis for it. Christ's love for us is an objective love. It's not an emotional love. Now, if we learn anything about marriage, it ought to be this. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ did the church. Christ and God don't love us because He's emotional about us. He loves us because He set His love on us as a decision that God made. That's not emotional. It's objective as God determined that He would choose us. Marriage is a union of the body, and marriage is a union of the soul. Thirdly, marriage is a union of the spirit. Now, you need to get this, because now we're leading into the Bible's greatest picture that's found in the marriage institution, that there is no true godliness in marriage unless there is a union of spirit. Your spirits must be together. You must meet on a spiritual level, which means that two people in marriage must be Christians. God's full intention for marriage cannot be fulfilled by unbelievers. A Christian must marry another Christian. If righteousness is a matter of the heart, then the heart must be right. And there's only one way that hearts are right, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter said, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. 
Now, I'll just tell you, that's, that's a, a passage that's written to believers in general. But how much more precious does that become when that is cemented into the most vital of all relationships that we have with each other, and that is our marriage? In Christ, the Bible says we're new people. And now we no longer have a kinship with the world. And so how odd would it be for someone who is a new creature in Jesus Christ by faith to be knit in soul and spirit to an unbeliever? Now I think about what Solomon, what Solomon did. He, he made many mistakes in marriage. The biggest one probably was he had too many of them. The more marriages that you have, the more mistakes you can make. And one of his marriages, though, he admitted was wrong by the actions that he took when he formed an alliance with Egypt. He formed this alliance by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Egypt is always a type of sin in the Bible. Solomon knew that his wife wasn't holy. So you know what Solomon did? Second Chronicles 8 verse 11. Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David under the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. Solomon built a special house to keep his wife in, and that was to keep her out of holy places so that she wouldn't defile them. Is that not a sad commentary on a person's marriage? His alliances with many women caused him to turn his heart away from God. Most of them were unholy. They worshipped idols. A marriage to an unbeliever is a marriage that runs on one prong or at most two prongs of a three-prong relationship. It's never good for a marriage to be based solely upon the body. It's not complete if it's based upon the body and the soul, that is, upon the body and emotions. And that's because a believer and an unbeliever will always be at odds. Godly interests are impossible because righteousness cannot exist with unrighteousness. Now, some of you hearing me now, you know that this is tough because you're in this type of relationship. It might be because one of the, the marriage partners got saved after the marriage. So what I would say to you is to pray for the grace of God. Pray for the grace of God in those marriages. Pray for the salvation of the other person. And pray for this, that the unbeliever in that relationship does not prevent the other from serving the Lord. Because I can tell you when it comes down to that, which way you've got to go. The Lord is always first. You always serve the Lord first. Now let me conclude today by showing you how the example of faithfulness of God in marriage foreshadows His love and faithfulness to us. Thirdly, is the illustration of the church. The Bible spells out love in both Old and New Testaments. There's the physical example of marriage between two believers, and then there is the spiritual example of God's faithfulness to Israel, we find in the Old Testament, and the commitment that He made to Israel foreshadows Christ's love for His church in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, that I'm not going to read it in, in its entirety for sake of time, but Paul speaks of the church as a pattern for marriage, or as I've preached that passage a couple of times, and I've said, you know, I'm not quite too sure which Paul is trying to get at. Is he trying to get that church, the church is a symbol of marriage, or is he trying to say marriage is a symbol of the church? 
And I think both of them are involved there. But he says in that passage that a husband is to love his wife as Christ does the church and gave himself for it. Let me read just a part, Ephesians 5:28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So there's a very important point for us to get. Man and wife are one flesh. They're faithful to each other because they are one flesh. And here I think that Paul is probably saying that that is emblematic of the church in Christ. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now in that, we should be able to see this vital connection. That faithfulness is a covenant of fidelity. Our concentration as we look at the command in uh, Exodus 20 verse 14 is to say we're speaking of physical adultery. And physical adultery, of course, is part of that. And when that happens, that physical adultery is a tearing apart of a covenant, a covenant that we make with each other. But we also know, because it's in the Ten Commandments, it is a tearing apart of the covenant that we have made with God. Isn't that right? It's also the covenant that we make with God. Now, above all other things that we do, we must be faithful in our commitment to our spouse because that mirrors faithfulness of Christ to His church. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll find there's a lot of symbolism, many symbolic things that teach us New Testament truths. Uh, later on, at the end of March, we're going to study... Old Testament sacrifices, and we'll talk about this, how God uses symbols to uh, teach us other truths. Well, marriage is one of these symbols that God uses. And I'm particularly drawn to the example of Moses. Uh, you remember the story how Moses struck the rock in the wilderness a second time. Moses struck that rock a second time to get water out of it, and you might think, well, why is that so seriously wrong? Why was God so offended because Moses struck the rock a second time? It was because of the symbolism. The New Testament says that rock was Christ. That represented Christ. And the New Testament shows us that Christ was only going to be stricken one time. That he would die for sin one time, never to be stricken again. And when he comes the second time, he comes in power and glory as a conquering king. Nobody is going to strike Christ again. And so when Moses struck that rock a second time, it ruined the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ smitten once to death, never to be smitten again. And Moses broke that symbol for God's people. And that's why God was so upset that he did not let Moses enter into the promised land. And likewise, adultery ruins a picture of Jesus Christ. Adultery ruins the picture of God's faithfulness to His people. It says that Jesus is an adulterer. That Jesus is someone who would leave you, that would forsake you, who will turn your back on you, who has made a promise to you that He will not keep. And folks, that is serious business. Adultery says the same thing. You break relationship, covenant fidelity with your spouse, you're breaking it with God. And you make an awful claim against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now marriage is physical, but it has great spiritual implications. 
God gave us marriage because marriage is the highest expression of human love. That's tops. You can't get any higher than this in the realm of humanity. And when it comes to the realm of divinity, moving into God's realm, faithfulness to God is the most important thing that you could ever do. Be faithful to God. The covenant of fidelity. It's a relationship that's expressed in this command in Exodus 20:14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is both physical and spiritual. So we should be able to close the book right here. It's direct. It's to the point. No explanation is given for it because none is needed. That's how devastating the sin is. One last word about the spiritual, and that is, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? There's a promise that I can make to you because God has made it, that if you trust Him as your Lord and Savior, He will always be faithful to you. He will never fail you. And when you come to Him, confessing your sins, putting your trust in Him, He is faithful to remove your sins, to cast them away from Him, never to bring them up again, and to give you eternal life, eternal life that can never be taken away. That's the covenant of fidelity that God has. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Remember that first. The seventh commandment is about covenant fidelity between God and the people that he loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great commandment. Lord, how we need to see the importance of it. In the few words that I've spoken today, I can't explain how, how deep this goes, how it cuts to the core of who you are. If you're not faithful, you can't be God. And we can't be Christians if we're not faithful. Lord, I prayed you'd help us to see that, to present the symbolism as it is, to be right about this, to be always faithful in everything that we do, and most particularly, Lord, faithful in that marriage vow. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen every marriage of every person in this room today, that you would strengthen it and make it holy as you demand for it to be. Lord, for two Christians that are married, we, we pray for the devotion of each to you. We pray for marriages, and we know there are some in our church that are married to those who aren't Christians and how their hearts are broken because they don't know you. And Lord, we pray for the salvation of that soul. Pray, Lord, that you would just reach out in your mercy and your grace and you would change that and bring that marriage together in, in such a way that it's united in all the prongs that a marriage should be united in. Lord, we pray for that blessing. And then, Lord, we pray for those who might be here today who don't know you as Savior and so... There, there is a marriage where neither is saved. Lord, the true commitment and true fellowship and, and happiness and peace, contentment and eternal life only comes by knowing you as Lord and Savior. Open that person's heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ today, trusting you and you alone to save us from our sins. 
Bless, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.